This podcast is recorded on stolen and unceded Aboriginal land. We acknowledge the First Nations and elders of this country and we join their calls for justice. Breaking news, fake non-binos, allegedly, <laughs> infiltrating our police force. Uh, this is a story in A-cam, the age. Even they thems. <laughs> even they thems. Yes. Yeah, officer they them. Uh, seven police <laughs> interviewed. <laughs> yeah. Would they please stop assaulting me just for participating yes. in protests? Would they please not <laughs> shoot any more unarmed Indigenous people? Um, now, seven police interviewed station rated over false, that's in quotation marks, non-binary claims. The Age says the Victoria police officers have searched the forces Frankston station and interviewed several officers accused of claiming to be non-binary to fraudulently claim more <laughs> money for civilian clothing allowances. <laughs> The Chief Commissioner announced a probe into the issue in July after reports that some male officers had been rorting a discrepancy in the force's clothing allowance by identifying as non-binary because under the scheme, female officers are entitled to claim about $1,300 more than male colleagues. So I assume maybe they just get the $1,300 extra um, because women's clothing is more expensive, women's civvy clothing. But what, um, is it civilian clothing? Or they, don't they just get uniforms? I think it's, How no, the fuck does this it's, work? It says, I swear I saw somewhere, yeah, more money for civilian clothing allowances. Because, you Why know, they when civilian? they get. They have a wage. Because we're, we're when they get their. We're fucking close out of our wages. Defund the police. Yes, De- that's fund true. Defund the police. That's true. Well, wait, but don't, I thought they meant when they're undercover. When they're at the protest and you're like, that looks like definitely one of my comrades. <laughs> right. Standing there in they a baseball to- cap. <laughs> They need to get a big floppy hat if they're a woman or non-binary, so, and it costs more. <laughs> Newspapers with the holes cut out of the eyes. It's really, really expensive it's, stuff. Cosy lives, and that's my question. It's like, is this culture war or cosy lives? That should be a segment on this show, by the way. Culture war or cosy lives? Right. Well, look, I I am positive. There's a few Frankston uh, police officers having a little bit of a laugh and getting some sweet, sweet coin out of it. And, um, hey, good luck to them exposing themselves as the fucking crooks and fraudsters and assholes that uh, police are. Now, I'm not a police yeah. officer. I just play one on TV. You're okay. Oh, and okay, and all my confusing. costumes were provided by the Amazon, the good people at Amazon Studios and their costume department, and I appreciate that. And we had a very inclusive show. workspace, lots of they, thems, left, right and centre, heaps of fucking lesbians. It was a grand old time. So, um, look, I, I get it. You know, I, I can relate. You get it. That's great. Um, good ad for Amazon there. Um, (laughs) shitty fucking company, but like, I, I mean, I guess the concern is that this really provide, it gives fuel to the fire of claims that like non-binary people are not real. Non-binary people are very real. It's just that these cops are fucking shitheads because all cops are bastards. So hope that helps to explain if anyone was confused (laughs) about the message from this story. We're used to the Greens um, pushing economic illiterate ideas. Well, I've been negotiating and talking with, uh, First Ministers, uh, not with uh, not with minor parties. We're stuck with the hosts of Chapo Shithouse Podcast. Hey everyone, it's Serious Danger, a podcast about Greens politics in Australia. Thank you so much for getting it. As featured on Media Watch, if you've tuned into Media Watch this week and have been hooked <laughs> and, and fronted to join the Serious Danger family, mm. welcome. You are now a danger dog. 
This is yeah. not an official Greens Party podcast. I am a member of the Greens. Emerald Moon is a member of the Greens. You'll be Full disappointed disclosure. to learn if you watch the, the Midi Watch podcast. It's not Tom's podcast to start, but it's also not oh, yeah, an official Greens Party podcast. podcast. <laughs> Fucking dogs. Raising women. Love to see it. Uh, it is made possible with the help of the Great Institute and produced by Michael Griffin. This week, we are taking a look at what National Cabinet is serving up for renters with their big announcement this week. Spoiler alert. How much? Hope you're hungry. If anything. Oh, nothing. <laughs> uh, we reflect, of course, on the big game, the massive story that dominated the news this week and the state of women's sport and all the politics involved in the Tillies. Mm. Um, we've got new patrons Thanks. on board. Thank you to Alec, Brian, Frankie, Ali, Camille, Braden, Jet, and Dylan. Uh, Frankie sent us a message specifically, joined to hear you rip apart friendly Geordies, staying for solid takes. A no time mostly from the Bugle, enjoying the funny leftist takes for Aussie politics. Thanks, Frankie. Thanks, Frankie. If you're a Patreon, of course, you get bonus content. A reminder that the latest Patreon episode is my uh, conversation with Lee Rhiannon, former Greens New South Wales senator, lifelong activist, very cool lady, the daughter of communists. Uh, we talk about Palestine. We talk about India, uh, what she makes of the current state of the Australian Greens and Auspol generally. Really interesting conversation, and it was great to have time with Lee. Um, if you sign up to become a patron, you'll get, get to listen to that. And the full back catalogue with everyone from fucking Will Anderson to million different chats about various interesting topics. Um, we talk about trees and Bob Brown. Oh, you'll have a great time. Here she is on Tom Ballard's podcast, Serious Danger, last year, which is... This is a podcast about green politics in Australia. Where she is introduced as the... Former National Green Secretary. Christine O'Connell has been heavily involved with the Greens for years, as a volunteer since 2015, and as Deputy and then National Green Secretary from 2017. Christine told me to watch she left that role in 2018 and hasn't been a member of the party for 18 months, although this profile about her time as National Secretary is still featured on the Greens' website. So, why didn't 10 News disclose to viewers that the renter featured in their story, which is all about how... The Greens claim a rent freeze could have saved tenants billions. ..is a spokesperson for the anti-poverty centre who has spent years campaigning for the Greens. 10 told us... 10 News First was not made aware that she used to have links to the Greens. Christine O'Connell has every right to argue her case. We're not discrediting her views, but the media has a responsibility to tell viewers which team she's batting for. You can read full statements from her and Channel 10 on our website. What do you think our next target should be? We've made it to Friendly Geordies, we've made it to Media Watch. What's next? Mm. Oh, my God. CNN. CNN. <laughs> Yep, okay, good goal. I got a text from my mum just, hey, you were just on Media Watch. Terrifying text to receive. Without yeah, more, that is not what you context. want to receive. <laughs> That's awful. Just about someone you interviewed on your podcast. And I said, uh-oh, Jesse Noakes, the climate activist, what the fuck, are we in trouble? Yeah. And she didn't re- my mum takes a while to reply to text, so I was freaking <laughs> out. No, no, no trouble. It was a story about Kristen McLaren. Mm, interviewed as a renter but not disclosing your activism and previous links with the greens you had cute curly hair (laughs) i like that that's so sweet because cousin mclaren aka Kristen o'connell i like that she just went with vaguely like irish sounding last name or something (laughs) it's pretty close it's it's pretty close close. yeah Uh, and they were mad because was it a channel seven interview with Kristen? channel 10 channel Channel 10, 10 sorry 
that yeah. interviewed her as a renter on the DSP, um, just about her experience and the state of things. Um, and but they didn't mention in the show that she works with the Anti Poverty Center, is an anti poverty you know advocate, and or that she had previously been National Secretary of the of the Greens. How long ago? Like. 2018, I think. 2018, six years, yeah. five years ago. Yeah. Which I'm like, okay, first of all, I mean, my take is I just think it's so, I think the idea that she shouldn't be doing that kind of interview because she like does that regularly. Like there's a bit in the piece in Media Watch where they say something like she's no stranger to these interviews. In fact, here's her in the ABC on this story. Here's her and blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, because she's an advocate. Like she's a campaigner fighting for herself and people like her which is like very valid and we absolutely need people who can do that but there's like this fucking there is this weird like fetishistic I don't know like the way that the media tend to use poor people in like case studies and they just want to use up some someone that'll be good for their story without actually seeing them as like a person who might have uh, autonomy and the desire to to fight for themselves. <laughs> to advocate, but yeah, I think that's true. Yeah, look, I mean, look, solidarity, love to Kristen. I mean, you know, regardless of the media watch, media watch's role in media criticism in this country, just being at the center of that would be pretty mm. shitty and overwhelming and annoying. And and we love Kristen and appreciate her being on our show and hope she's okay. That's for sure. I think media watch's general position was that Channel Ten should have disclosed this this fact. And really yeah. their target was Channel 10. And, in fact, during this story, Media Watch said, we're not saying that Kristen is entitled to her views or she should advocate for this, but viewers have a right to know about relative information that lets you know who this person was. And I do think it is pretty shitty journalism from Channel 10 to just not at least know or acknowledge the fact that she's part of the Anti-Poverty Centre and, and, and is a, an active person the, who campaigns for stuff. What about the Greens um, connection, though? Like, do you think that's yeah, still relevant, Green, that she well, had a volunteer position five years ago and is no longer a member? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that is pretty dodgy. I mean, more recently, she did publicly work on Sylvie's campaign for the Greens okay. in Sydney as well, so that is slightly more relevant. But I mean, the Channel Ten responded by saying we had no idea she had any links to, to the Greens. Well, so you're that's an just idiot, again, then. just just shitty, <laughs> shitty journalism you. from Channel yeah. Ten. I think yeah, the greater critique is really: is this the most important media story for Media Watch to be focusing on in sure. this debate? For God's sakes! And Dee Madigan, of course, who's a massive Labor hack and yeah. advoca- advocates Labor Party all the time. You know, was taking a lot of glee in this as this is some fantastic uh, win for the champion of the, you know, champion, um, a great victory for the people or something. Mm. Always lots of other point, people pointed out that, you know, she herself and her advertising um, outfit has lobbied for Airbnb yeah. previously. So she might have a few little uh, uh, issues uh, involved in, in yeah, a few horses in the race there. As a few other people pointed out too, we, we talked about a piece in The Age um, a couple of weeks ago, which featured an exclusive interview with the landlord uh, and her position as a member, a committee member of the Australian Landlords Association Something was not like initially that. disclosed yeah, yeah. in the article and then eventually yeah. they corrected it and said, oh, sorry, it is relevant that she's actually in the Landlords Association. So that's important. Media Watch, you're so quiet. You're not saying anything, Media Watch. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I hope you're okay, uh, Kristen. Yeah. And more importantly, my hair was curly and cute and my mum liked it. According to your mum. And that's what matters, eh? <laughs> the Greens have shown their true colours. The minor party is green by name, 
and by nature. The Greens have introduced the first bill to legalise cannabis on a national scale. And look, it's a little bit wacky and it's out there and it's never going to go anywhere. But, you know, cannabis is an industry, medicinal cannabis, CBA and things like that. It is is an interesting Mm. topic to discuss. It, it's it's it is like you say it's like the the green dream. Um, the problem. Let me just unpack this in a couple of ways. First of all, medicinal cannabis, as we know, cannabis rather, as we know, I'm not taking any promise you, uh, as we know, is different in that it does not have the addictive strain. This is what the greens are about. They are about just this. Absolutely reckless disregard for any kind of anything that sort of looks like structure and you know l- adherence to, to law. Well, the biggest story this week, apart from uh, Annabelle Crabb's kitchen cabinet back on the screens, is of course oh. the other cabinet, national cabinet meeting <laughs> in Brisbane this week. National cabinet. Which meeting. one's worse? Would you say? Which yeah, one's which worse? one's worse? Well, I don't know. I did read the good the uh, analysis of um, Annabelle Crabb's kitchen cabinet show and why politicians, they're just like us, including Peter Dutton, you know, um, in the ABC. So that was a real, really good read. But uh, just not, not as riveting as the media release that came out from the Prime Minister's office following the meeting of National Cabinet this week, I must say. <laughs> um, National Cabinet... Uh, as I would imagine a lot of our listeners know, but it is the heads of all the states and territories. It's all the first ministers, I guess. So it's the prime minister plus all the premiers, et cetera. They meet and talk about stuff that they can coordinate on and agree on and, you know, things they can do together for national consistency, et cetera. Uh, It is confusing that they would do this because my understanding, Tom, was that the prime minister, why would he bother to kind of talk to the heads of states and territories when he has absolutely no control over what they do? Yeah. No, it can't do anything and the Greens are ridiculous to call on the federal government to do anything about housing or rents because, of course, that's all states and territories' uh, responsibility. But the states and territories and the federal government are getting together in National Canada to discuss better rights Mm. for renters and stuff, but they can't do anything about it. So it is weird. Yeah, well, the Greens are just stupid. But in fact, they did get together to announce, quote, the most significant reforms to housing policy in a generation. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah, according to Albanese on Twitter. I mean, and I saw, God, now I can't even remember who retweeted it, but was like, the sad thing is that this is probably true. They probably are the most significant reforms to housing policy in a generation. And yet, as we will find out, they're pretty dog shit. What do you define as a generation? Is that I guess I should That's know a good this. I've kind of written a book on this, but they're about 15, 15 year stretches. Like the millennials are made up of people born between the fifteen year period. So fifteen years that doesn't make sense because don't most people have kids late older than fifteen? How's that work? No, I don't know. Take okay. it up with the ABS. I guess it's intentionally vague, perhaps. <laughs> Some might say. Well, some of the biggest uh, changes to housing um, uh, recently, like the probably the most massive housing, was the deregulation of the financial sector in the 1980s under the Hawke and Keating government, which led That's... us to the absolute <laughs> neoliberal shit show that we suffer under today with the housing crisis that we have. Different generation, though. You would, I would yeah, say sure. that is a different generation for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, this, is, this all ties in with the debate on the Housing Australia Future Fund bill, uh, Australian politics's favourite soap opera, which the Greens <laughs> delayed a vote on 
whatever, a few months ago because they said, we know that National Cabinet is going to be meeting uh, between August and, and October and so we want to delay a vote on this bill until they've met and done something the fuck about skyrocketing rents, please. So just that's just a reminder as well that, yeah, they delayed the vote. They deferred the vote for that specific purpose. They haven't, they haven't blocked the bill, but anyway. Uh, we've now, they've, you know, they've had this meeting. We awaited the announcements with bated breath. Unfortunately, no rent freeze and, in fact, mm. no limits on the amount by which your rent can increase. The number one thing that we have been calling for, uh, pretty shitty. Hey, did you expect, did you think they were going to do something, Tom? Uh, well, I guess my my level of hope was only the idea that some states were going into or at least made some noises about mm. movement on, on things. So we heard from what we heard from Victoria saying that there was the discussion of potential rent caps Mm-hmm. Um, was kind of part of the conversation. So everyone was saying, oh, no, 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 uh, state wants a red freeze, but yeah. you know, Victoria might be talking about a red cap. So you had that yeah. kind of noise going in there into the national cabinet. But I guess, yes, yeah, certainly over the recent weeks, the hardening of the position. And as we've discussed before on this podcast, you know, this is not just a policy debate. Uh, there is a political reality here, an existential threat towards the Labour Party's existence that means they cannot allow to give too much ground to the Greens, even yep. though we're cool and correct. And even though it would be cool and correct to maybe uh, stop people who are one rent increase away from homeless homelessness from being turfed out into fucking sleeping rough or yes. couch surfing. Um, that would be really cool. Mm. But, okay, so I thought we'll just run through really, really quickly. They came out with the list of things that they have agreed among the states and territories uh, in relation to housing. And we'll dig into some of the more juicy stuff around renters' rights um, after this. The first thing that they agreed was just that when their help to buy scheme will start. So I saw like they announced this as we've got this help to buy scheme where 40,000 low to middle income buyers um, will get access to an equity contribution from the federal government. They will uh, contribute up to 40% for new homes, 30% for existing homes. And they had been kind of vague on when that would start. This is, this, they'd actually already announced this during the federal election. In fact, we discussed it on this podcast. Um, but they, yeah, they're saying it'll start in 2024. States and territories just need to pass legislation to allow it to happen. And everyone agreed and held hands and went, yes, we're going to do this. I mean, the problem with this scheme, as I believe the Greens, Adam Bant came out and, and said that uh, it's, I think he said something like, it shouldn't be called the health device scheme. It should be called the hard to get scheme because it's going to be so hard to get. I suppose there are very strict eligibility requirements and there's only 40,000, which is, you know, pretty uh, tiny over uh, in the scheme of things. So, I mean, shared ownership is an interesting thing though, because we, we had that as part of like the Greens had a, a shared ownership proposal in our housing plan that we brought to the federal election. You might remember we said, 125,000 of our, you know, 1 million social and affordable homes should be um, homes that first home buyers can live in and own up to 75% equity of for $300,000. So a very big difference in the in the kind of price cap or the the gap in the way that um you know, the amount that our first home buyers would be spending, I think it can get up to like $950,000 um in, uh. in Sydney for the the homes that we're talking about. Uh, Labor's 
proposal. Um, and then for ours, if you want to get out of it, you, you shall sell your share back to the Federal Housing Trust. But it's it's a hard one to explain. Like I feel as though we always, it's a great idea and I think people like it when they hear it, but it is hard to, yeah, to say to people in a really quick, um, I guess, communication, this idea of a shared ownership scheme. I think it's quite foreign to a lot of people. It is does it receive the same critiques as like first home buyers schemes and grants and stuff like doesn't wouldn't people just argue that this does kind of just push up the price of housing yeah but i and that's what i didn't understand like i wonder if there is a response to that in in the greens proposal and whether like how they keep those price how they keep the price low where they get the three hundred thousand dollars from i'm not sure and i'm not sure if it it relates to some sort of difference in the policy that i'd have to go and refresh my memory on that's mm. like how publicly versus privately owned it is um yeah i'm not actually too sure but i agree like it could potentially just be kind of inflationary and this is the one that the coalition morrison was like albanese wants to sit around your kitchen table right or that oh, i don't to, remember that he wants, he wants to own your own wants to own your home too kind of thing like, yeah i mean he owns, he owns enough anyway <laughs> <laughs> that's <laughs> that's the that was the first thing they're like this is so great. We're doing the thing that we said we would do next year if the Tyson Territories do it. The second mm-hmm. thing, 1.2 million new homes over five years from 2024. Isn't that incredible, Tom? I don't know. That I don't think so. That is so many homes. 1.2 million. <laughs> I don't know if you heard that number. It's really big. That is a big number. Yeah, that's true. That's a big number. Um, what does it mean? Not much. Not much at all. So this is just the it's fucking fake honestly it it's it means nothing it is literally they it's the states and territories saying across australia you know what would be a nice number of homes to be built by someone over from between 2024 and 2029 about 1.2 million that would be really nice. Be pretty good. So, yeah. so we previously heard about building a million homes. Like a million. That is a number and that people might have heard before. The federal government said building a million homes. And what they mean by that is that in Australia, a million homes would be built somewhere, somehow. Not the government somewhere, owning somehow. and building yeah. a million homes or anything like that, but just through the private sector and through the general business of Australia, yeah. a million homes would be built over that five-year period. <laughs> no discussion as to who owns the homes at the end of it, how much it costs to live in those homes, whether they're affordable or where they live or where they're positioned. Is that is that right? It's just like a million homes total. Not specifically. There is, well, and we'll kind of get into this, like, you know, there's vague kind of posturing around how that might happen, right. um, which revolves largely around loosening planning laws so that developers can build more and a particular focus on urban development. So rather than, you know, urban sprawl, whatever, rather than like opening up those big kind of, um, developments outside of the city and in the, in the suburbs, it's more about increasing density um, in the city. The And the thing with the, so yeah, they previously had said 1 million homes, we all agree. Do we all think it would be nice to build a million homes? Do you agree? Yeah. New South Wales, Labor, agree? Yes. Yep. Um, but now they said, how about what if we did 200,000 more? Do you agree that also <laughs> would be good? And they're like, yep, do you? Hands up. Hands up. Who thinks that wouldn't be good if we had 200,000 extra homes? No one? All right, agree by consensus. Thank you. Um, and they said, and plus, if um, you build. Point of order. Uh, what about 1.4 million? <laughs> I think that would be even better. Would that better. be good? Actually, and then someone was like, here. no, that would be too many. That would be too many. Too many homes. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Um, the oh, 200,000 extra homes as well, what's special about these ones is that if a state and territory does 
smash their target, like if they're building more above what they would be expected to build for that $1 million, $1 million, sorry, homes target um, from 2028, they will get money from the federal government. The federal government has put a $3 billion new home bonus on the table for states and territories that smash their targets and their goals. Uh, oh, so the federal government can provide incentives to the states to do things that's on housing. That's what I was, I was going to ask you about this, time. I was going to ask you about this. Is that something they can do, this. is it? That's interesting. <laughs> it is actually something they could do. In fact, they're right. doing it with that. They're saying if you build more homes, you will, will reward you by giving you a payment after you've built the homes, not to allow you to build the homes, but afterwards we will give you about $15,000 for each new home. Mm-hmm. Um, we build over the one million uh, up to our, you know, our new stretch goal, as they're calling it, of one point two million homes. They're also saying that they are putting five hundred million dollars on the table for local and state government grants through a competitive process. Um, if local and state governments do things that basically make it easier for homes to be built, like you know, building essential services or infrastructure. Um, in a community that would then make it easier effectively for developers to to put new homes there. Um, so, yes, just some incentives for the states to do things. It's so interesting. Great. So, yeah, as I said, the, like, the main way that they're saying we need to increase supply, it's all about supply, 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 uh, to tackle the housing crisis and build our 1.2 million, our 1.2 million homes, sorry, is by changing our planning system. So they also, at National Cabinet, agreed to the National Planning Reform Blueprint, which is effectively updating state and territory regional plans to account for these new targets. Again, just aspirational things in plans that each of the states and territories have where they say, we would like this many homes, please. Like, I think we spoke about this on on the show recently. Queensland did this. Um, And then it's stuff like we all agree that we'll maybe do some zoning changes and some land releases to increase density. And we will, quote, streamline approval pathways um, and reduce, I think they say something like reducing the lengths of time that it takes for developments to be approved. Uh, All things that it's like we, you know, it's pretty easy for developers if they are wealthy and powerful enough to just get whatever the fuck they want as it mm. is. But we need to make it even easier for them because that's going to solve the housing crisis. Um, and in fact, they I think they're even saying they, they're talking about strengthening call-in powers, which is the state government can call in a development, call in a decision that a local government has made if they disagree with it. Um, right. And effectively saying that, yeah, state governments could come in over the top of local councils that refuse to approve developments. Um, so we finally, this is Labor, I guess, you know, NIMBY-proofing the nation, hey? Mm. I mean, look, we need to do a big old deep dive on, on the state of NIMBYism. I think that you and oh, I have yeah. some pretty, yeah, nuanced takes on this and we're probably Very not new. fully. I have really smart takes on it. Yeah, really we're really smart. We'll get to that yeah, later. And we funny, actually, as well. But yeah, we'll get like like one day we'll have to because we can't fit them all here. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, there, I I think um, in the course of being a public green defender, of course, you get charged of NIMBYism all the time. I see stories <laughs> re- relating to NIMBYs that I do think are ridiculous, and I think mm. that you yeah. know the the balances to address the housing crisis, you know, some considerations uh, went out uh, over over some environmental concerns and some you know local character bullshit and heritage, which is often just rich people saying that yeah, we don't want a certain kind of people or a certain kind of house being yeah. built near us. I do think that sucks. Okay, so planning, um, you know, regulations, there probably is some room to move. I think, you know, in some inner cities, 
the height restriction stuff you do yeah. hear about are pretty ridiculous and so that could, could well be changed. I Something I did come across when researching the book was like remembering if you change um, zoning reg- regulations, you also increase the value of the land. Like if, if yeah. you can um, build more houses on a block of land, yeah. then that makes that land far more valuable, which then bumps up house prices across the board, which also bumps up house prices across the board. Yeah, which so is it's why. Always, if yeah. these reforms are, are never doing anything about reducing the house of pricing, then you should uh, view them pretty skeptically, I think. Exactly. It's exactly the same thing that you were talking about, that the policies that the major parties uh, propose to, quote, address the housing crisis, almost always drive inflation in the fucking housing market. Like negative yeah. gearing, first home buyer grants, whatever it is, loosening planning laws are all part of a system that incentivizes speculation. Yes. And that drives up that, yeah, that, that is inflationary and it will drive and up costs. And they, they will say this. They will say this explicitly. Yeah. Jason Clare's housing minister before the, before the election. No one wants house prices to come down. That would be terrible. Everyone's house prices need to go up. We need to we need uh, constantly need to just balloon. It's constantly boost up the house price again and again and again. That's just good economics, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the upzoning thing, the thing, yeah, when you upzone a property uh, that is very good for developers who have land banked a bunch of land hmm. um, because then suddenly they've got these windfall profits, which is why the Greens have proposed a, you know, windfall profits tax in a lot of states. I know that's something that the Greens in Queensland at least have talked about. For a long time that you tax those that you know upzoned value of, of the land um yeah. and then you might use that to pay for you know public infrastructure might be nice um but yeah like i hate that the nimby yimby discourse has made me even be like oh do i need to defend nimbies because it's like no nimbyism obviously is shit but it's like quote unquote yimbies the yimbies that i see are fucking mm. loser idiots who are just like <laughs> sucking developer dick and think that that is going to solve the housing crisis when, like, we just know that it's absolutely not. Um, hmm. Even though, yeah, there are lots of ways that you could increase the the diversity, the mix, the density of um, housing options, particularly, yeah, in the city that make the city make the city, you know, a better place to live, makes greater neighborhoods, make them livable, um, and increase housing supply. Just yeah, not forgetting again though the fact that like we have all these fucking empty homes because again, developers are incentivized to just leave them fucking empty. Yeah. Um and of course the fundamental issue with this kind of answer that you just loosen up planning regulations, you get developers, private developers to build more homes and that will bring down prices because supply and demand, etc. Hasn't worked that way. No evidence that it has worked that way. We tried that. It's fucking failed. Yeah. And yet there is nothing like this isn't about delivering affordable homes. It's just about delivering homes. And in fact, a lot of those high density developments, the high rises are fucking luxury apartments. They're so expensive mm. um, and they're not suitable for the kind of people that that actually need homes right now. So the the agreements that National Cabinet came to this week they kind of pay lip service to this. You know, they say that states and territories will look at, quote, reforms to support the rapid delivery of social and affordable housing. And they say... No, no, I'm sorry. Affordable housing, is that just market rates? Well, <laughs> we that's right. I guess that's what it could mean. So, you know, <laughs> fuck, fuck me anyway. Um, they do say, <laughs> and this is like just the fucking, the wormy... I, I can't imagine the wordsmithing that would have gone on at the floor of National Cabinet for this one, but, quote, consideration of the phased introduction of inclusionary zoning and planning to support permanent, affordable, social and specialist housing in ways that do not add to construction costs. 
So the the like already implicit in this weak weak idea to maybe consider potentially phasing something in at some point um, is that inclusionary zoning, i.e., mandating a requirement for a certain proportion of new developments to be social and or affordable housing. Uh, that that will add to construction costs and like that that is a consideration that needs to be front of mind when you're looking at increasing the supply of social housing is Uh. how much is it going to cost the developers that we're maybe forcing to include public housing in their giant new fucking high rise. Yeah, I think read that as that do not minimize construction profits would be a more more accurate uh, reading of exactly how that works. I mean, specialist housing, do they mean like more housing that are more like accessible for people with disabilities? Because they will add to construction costs and it fucking should. Well, yeah, and it should. Yeah. Do not add to, that's right. It's like you've literally just canceled out what you've just said. So you're fucking cowards and I hate you all. Um, (laughs) Speaking of, don't worry though, we've got a better deal for renters. Is Great, what thank God. Labor says. Uh, so number one, they so they've got yeah a, a bunch of things that they're putting under this better deal for renters package that the states and territories have agreed to at national cabinet. First one, ending no grounds evictions. Now, Tom, th- there is a bit of a like there is a semantic disagreement around what no grounds evictions are. What do you think a no grounds eviction is? A no grounds eviction is a landlord evicting you. And either not giving a reason or for any reason that they like whatsoever um, that is not considered reasonable by any uh, mm. sense of the by any stretch of the imagination. So a reasonable eviction would be that landlord moving back into that property, for example. Yeah. Okay. Um, but, but, but under the law, under the way it's certainly sort of set up. That's my understanding of no grounds eviction. And when we have laws banning that, it says that if landlords want to evict tenants, they have to give a clear reason that meets the reasonable test. And so do you think that it is reasonable for the landlord to not renew your lease, therefore evicting you, even though you haven't, you know, nothing wrong has happened, they just don't want to renew the lease, it's ended? Uh, No. Yeah. Well, I, I don't think that's reasonable. <laughs> well, no, because then that would just okay, right? So, so, so that's an example. This is of, the distinction. Yeah, your lease comes so, to an end, and yeah. then they say bye bye. I want to yeah. charge someone else more money. Yes, what happens to most of us, right? <laughs> um, oh, Jesus Christ! So, like that, and yes, this is the other thing in there. They talk about, um, I guess, I think it's, there's something about strengthening your ability to appeal. A retaliatory evic- eviction because I believe in all states and territories, or at least in in most, certainly in Queensland, it is technically illegal to evict someone, including by not renewing their lease because they annoyed you by asking for right. too many repairs or whatever. Yes, but everyone fucking knows that's what happens. Everyone knows yes. you ask for the shower to get fixed, and suddenly you don't get your lease renewed. And you're like, oh, that's so interesting. I thought that was illegal. Yes. Um, but yeah, that's obviously what's going to happen when you don't end no grounds evictions. Uh, for many, many years, as as I understand it, you know, advocates for better rental rights and people in the housing space would speak about ending no grounds evictions to mean that you have a right to stay in your home unless, yeah, you do something wrong or the, the owner needs to live there or needs to um, renovate, it's not suitable to live there, things like that. Not uh, and, and that you have basically a long-term right, yeah, to stay in your home. Um, but how it's now being interpreted so that Labor can say, yes, advocacy groups, we have ended no grounds evictions and this is exactly what happened in Queensland. They're like, yep, we're ending no grounds evictions and media continue to fucking report that Queensland Labor ended no grounds evictions when they didn't. But 
they're like, okay, no, we've, instead of having no grounds as something that's listed in, in the act as, as a way that you can issue a notice to leave for, we now have a list of grounds under which you can notice, uh, issue a notice to leave. One of them is the lease ended. So they just <laughs> renamed it in the act and they're like, we did it. You're welcome. Oh my God. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, Queensland did that. They say that you can, you can end the lease at the end of any fixed term. They ended no grounds evictions for periodic leases. Um, Victoria similarly ended no grounds evictions for periodic leases. Apparently you guys can only end it though at the end of the first fixed term on a, like as a no grounds basically. And then after that, you oh, can't, okay. which is interesting, okay. but interesting. It, that's a recent change and it's kind of unclear yet what impact that is actually happening. Well, um, it's driving landlords out of the market. I mean, all these rental reforms clearly, in Victoria, yeah, well, that's the why landlords the housing just prices. fighting it too fucking hard. Yeah, well, well I guess we should take that as a, a word of warning. Um, <laughs> the ACT banned no grounds evictions, ACT, our um, rental regulations kings, it seems. And yeah, various other states and territories are already looking at this. Like Tasmania has already said that we're going to do something like either the Queensland or the Victorian model. Um, South Australia, WA and New South Wales, though, uh, yeah, you can end the lease at the end of any periodic or fixed term. New South Wales is removing it for periodic leases. SA has said they might do something close to the ACT and WA is like not looking at it yet. When we say periodic, do you mean like month to month? Yeah, that's right. Okay, yeah. gotcha. Cool. Yeah. No worries. And just a reminder that I think something like 94% of all leases in Australia are, are a year or less. Again, yeah. we, do, we do not have long-term leases in this country. So, yes, you're always looking yeah, literally year to year about uh, having a safe and secure um, and affordable yeah. place to rent. That's, that's what you're looking at. It's a classic. Like I think I've spoken about how, you know, I feel as though it's a very fundamental part of my uh, political identity or experience the fact that like I rented, you know, my family home was rented for so long and, and having to leave that home when I was 13 was really pivotal and quite devastating for me. I didn't mm. even remember until recently that my first door knock was with um, Amy McMahon's campaign in South Brisbane in 2017 and that it was a specific renters' rights one, and we were, we were going around and talking to um, people. And I literally even remember we knocked on someone's door who was packing up because they were like, "Oh yeah, we we're getting kicked out. Didn't get our lease renewed." But for me, I was like, "Wait, there are countries or there are jurisdictions where I can't just get kicked out for no reason. Like, mm. holy shit, that would be so transformative. That would change my life." so radically to know that I just have that security that like if I'm fucking already if I'm paying rent if I'm paying your fucking mortgage I'm not doing anything wrong I can stay in my home unless you know mm. you need it um and yes like and, and I think I was reflecting on this I posted on Twitter that you know that was what six years ago or or less and no one really myself included thought of of renting as like a political issue i didn't think of you know renters as a as a political class so as something mm. that could be improved through political action and i was like astounded that that you know the greens were taking on something like this and that was true up until quite recently and but you know every single day now there's a story about renters rights it's on national cabinet agenda it is like yeah. You know the the major parties feet are to the flames of uh, the demands for for better renters' rights, which is even though all this shit is so depressing in general, that is kind of extraordinary. It's a it is a little thing to celebrate, I think. Yeah, well, I think that's first of all material conditions, the worsening rental health uh, rental crisis and the housing crisis getting worse over the past yeah. couple of years is certainly a factor there. But a true testament to 
yeah, the Greens political work, renters' rights organisations, mm. and and yeah, people like Max Chandler made that out there politicising the material conditions of renters and saying this is this is not good enough. And and what you're up against there is the fucking Australian mindset of you know the Australian dream. Remember, is just mm-hmm. to have to own be a homeowner, and somebody's a house is their castle. And if you live in the property that I own, I'm doing you a favour. I'm doing you a solid. It's not yours. You're yeah. constantly on watch. You are on a lease. You owe me money. Mm-hmm. I am the landed gentry and you should be lucky and grateful for having a roof over your head um, provided to you by me as you help me pay my mortgage. It's it's yeah. so strong in the Australian psyche and you see what happens when people push back against it and say this is actually unfair and fucked up and terrible. Um, Australian, <laughs> that the landed gentry of Australia lose their fucking minds. Almost this imagining of renters as homeless, as though the home that I live in is not really my home because it's someone no. else's home. And that I think is what's about. And you failed. About- you failed at the Australian yeah. dream. So you're, yeah. actually, you're actually a loser and so you're you're being somewhat punished. And how dare you assert any kind of rights over my property while you're renting it from me? Yeah. And, you know, that when we talk about long-term leases and, like, lease security and ending no grounds evictions, even though it can be a bit more complicated, it's not, like, as flashy as a rent freeze, it so fundamentally gets that issue of this being someone's home that they live in. Yes. Like, similarly, these standards that or, you know, this um, agreement that Labor has come out with through National Cabinet doesn't mention anything about minor modifications, which I think is again, goes to that fundamental issue of being able to put down roots in your home as a renter and, and treat it like your home, you know, treat it with, with respect, but I should be able to hang a fucking picture on the fucking wall. I should be uh-huh. able to plant a garden if I can, if there's space, you know, just basic things like that. That's not even mentioned in this. And like that, I think, you know, minor modifications is something that we still need to continue pushing for, but there are many things to push for, um, including basic minimum standards that (laughs) in this agreement, what they've said is, quote, they will phase in minimum quality standards for rental properties. Sounds great, you think. Uh, They say, for example, stovetop in good working order, hot and cold running water. Reach for the stars. Reach for the stars. Hot and cold running water, guys. Renters, they really get it too fucking easy. I tell you what, all these pro-renter reforms that are coming through, no wonder landlords are fleeing the market, you know, having to provide hot and cold running water to get paid $500 a a week in rent for a one-bedroom property. Like, yeah. But I'm just a poor mum and dad investor. How am I supposed to provide (laughs) both hot and cold water to be little tenants? First they wanted cold, then they wanted hot. <laughs> what next? Greedy fucking bastards. Um, yeah, so it sounds as though, I mean, based on this, it's really not improving current standards in any meaningful way because they're already in place um, a requirement that, you know, rental properties be habitable, which arguably you would think includes things like hot and cold running water or a working stovetop. It's just being more explicit about what that means. Um, apparently that's similar to what New South Wales has done recently where they have set out standards quite highly specifically in in their regulation, their tenancy laws. Um, it doesn't include things that it should, like, you know, energy efficiency or accessibility, disability standards, um, minimum standards like that, I apparently. And also I should say shout out to Joel from Better Renting who helped me get my head around a lot of this stuff today and what was announced and what is in place across the country because I'm only Queensland-brained and didn't know all the other the rest of the country. 
But as Joel informed me, Victoria and the ACT are the only ones right now who have any like minimum energy efficiency standards for, for rentals, which is like such a basic. And, and, and even so, Victoria's seemed pretty shit. It's like you can have like a two-star energy rated fixed heater in the main living room that has maybe helped some people to, to upgrade, but not for others. Um, so that's the minimum standard stuff. The headline though, rent caps, Tom. Do you hear? What? That's what the right. Hell? Oh my god, so this crazy. is huge. Oh my god, this is great. insane. I mean, you sort of you sort of build up some stuff before, and I got a little bit disappointed with the reality. But mm, I'm sure but this now, time around, everything's going to be good. I saved something good for you. I did. Uh, rent caps. Well, that is a national standard of no more than one rent increase per year for a tenant in the same property across fixed and ongoing agreements. That's the quote. What the national? cabinet release uh limiting the frequency by which your rent can go up by an unlimited amount tom are you happy well Um, it doesn't doesn't affect you but (laughs) does it (laughs) well it means i can only jack up my tenants rent once a year this is an outrage frustrating right but you like you can jack it up by whatever you want so you know oh thank god yeah don't worry it's okay wait till i tell my wife about this (laughs) (laughs) i think she'll be so pleased so, I mean, talk me through your journey on this because I remember maybe last week or early in the week you were like, what about the thing of, you know, limiting the frequency of rent increases? Is that a win? And I was like, it's absolutely not a win in any way. Well, look, would you say that, okay, so so the idea that you can, yes, you, you can only raise rent uh, once a year. Now, in no way am I su- suggesting that there are not landlords who will jack up rents insane amounts of money and mm-hmm. kick people out. I suppose by limiting the frequency of the rent increases, you could argue that it would in some way limit the amount by which that rent could go up because a, a sudden increase by a huge amount would would result in a tenant being unable to pay and having to move out, if you know what I mean. So I'm just saying there and are there are. I think they would care. Uh, well, I know, and I guess I guess the market is such a fucking landlord's market at the moment. They probably could jack up the rent so much that anyone they could kick anyone out and get almost anybody in to replace them. So yeah. actually, cancel what I just said. It's a fucking <laughs> shit show. But do you know what I mean? Like, I'm sure yeah. there are some there are some in landlords theory, who consider the basic actually... pay of of uh, you know how much the tenants can afford for a rent and do increase their rent in line of those those market rates relative to people's incomes. Okay, like, I think that's, but I that's think a pretty that's the reasonable thing. thing. Like, they'll increase it relative to market rents, which will mean it'll just keep going up. Up at the same insane rate like yeah and we've seen so there already are in almost every jurisdiction uh this this already exists a limit a 12 monthly limit on right. the number of times you can increase the rent in fact it's only wa and the nt that have the six monthly uh limit you can increase the rent every six months queensland yeah. that was the case until recently when they similar to this were like we're doing something about rent increases. We're limiting them to once a year. Um, Jesus. And what concerns me, though, specifically about the wording of this, where it says one rent increase per year for a tenant in the same property across fixed and ongoing agreements, that implies to me that you can end a six-month lease and raise the rent if you kick the tenant out which is the loophole that was left in place in Queensland, which incentivizes shorter leases, first of all, but also incentivizes a landlord to kick out the tenant where they may not right. otherwise have because then mm. they can get a new tenant in and jack up the rent every six right. months you, rather than every if you, year. 
Right. You can start a new lease with an increased rent. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and right. that doesn't like the fact that this refers to a tenant rather than tying it to the property, which is the solution that the obvious solution that people have said would reduce that happening. That is extremely concerning, and we have already like literally, yeah, I think I've said before within uh, like pretty much immediately after they introduced this in Queensland, which the Greens warned this is what would happen. Uh, mm. Yeah, tenants and were being like, oh yeah, my landlord is gonna kick me out because of this, and um, yeah. yeah. And so you'd think that would normally work. A landlord would say, I'm going to increase the rent by this much. The tenant says, I cannot afford that. And then the landlord says, very well, you're not, your lease is not getting renewed. I'm going to find a new tenant with a new lease at that higher rent rate. And uh, that's, that's uh, going to work out for me. Well, it's more that they would just issue them a notice to leave. They would say, your lease is up. You have to leave so that they sure. can raise the rent. Okay. Yeah. If they, yeah, yeah. If they already knew that that tenant could not afford to pay the increased rent. Well, no, because they couldn't increase the rent if they kept the tenant in the property because without the change of tenant, they have to wait 12 months before they oh, can raise the rent. Yeah. Gotcha, it's a gotcha. little bit complicated but, like, no, basically, yeah, it, it incentivizes them kind of kicking people out after six months. So if they yeah. do that, that'll just be even more fucked and more people will be, yeah, kicked out of their homes. So you fuckwits. Um, meanwhile, yeah, so Victoria is like just trying to be even more, you know, we're trying to do the right thing, proposed every two years, which is kind of like why? Like like if the rest of the country isn't doing it, I mean there is an argument that it should be nationally consistent across the country that you can only raise the rent every year. That makes sense. Uh, it should also be limited, the amount by which you can raise the rent, obviously. Um, I saw at, like <laughs> – the first coverage I saw of this was in The Guardian. I think that maybe Labor dropped it to The Guardian as a scoop and so I, I read the article in the morning of the National Cabinet meeting and fucking Paul Carp or whoever it was was like the Greens have been saying that they would be willing to negotiate, you know, instead of a rent freeze um, just to end unlimited rent increases so maybe they will be open to this and will support the half. And I was like, is that so? That's so fucking presumptuous and like disingenuous as well. Like, if you just took a second to be like, does this actually go in any way to what the Greens have been asking for, which is an end to unlimited rent increases? Like, mm. un as you know, unlimited rent increases every year are unlimited rent increases. Um, yeah. And the idea that this is, yeah, this is Labor negotiating in good faith and the Greens should stop being petulant and be like, yeah, this meets our demands, I think is ridiculous. I saw, yeah, Julie Collins, housing minister, being interviewed on 7.30 and she was just like, yeah, strengthening rents is rights and we're just making sure that all landlords and tenants have a good idea of their rights and responsibilities in this relationship and all the blah, 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 blah. And just, just no no acknowledgement of the fact that the rent is too damn high, God damn it, and yeah. it's going to get higher and higher. Yep. It sure is. It sure is. Um, the other, a few little scraps just to, to round up what else was in that agreement at National Cabinet, um, we've spoken about this on the show before, banning soliciting rent bidding, not banning red bidding, just banning soliciting it. So you can still take it and because the housing market is so absolutely cooked and people who can pay are going to pay whatever the fuck they can to get into a home, really doesn't matter. Um, they are making it easier or saying that states and territories should make it easier to get out of your lease to end your lease if you are subject to domestic and family violence. That's good. Lots of states and territories are already doing that. Limiting mm -hmm. lease break fees, also good. Again, lots of states and territories already doing it. One cool thing is limiting the, uh, like providing a prescribed application form for tenancies effectively to limit 
the things that an agent or a landlord can ask you for. And right. and a lot of it is around like, you know, protecting and destroying, simultaneously protecting and destroying, but uh, renters or, or an applicant's information. Um, I don't know if you've like, have you heard any kind of stories about weird shit that renters have to provide to apply these days? They're like, tell us, you know, your last three meals and what, <laughs> yeah, what you took references. in high school your religion. And, and all that. Yeah, Jesus. Yeah. yeah, totally. Yeah, people do Google searches and there are these rent- renters blacklists as well that do the rounds yeah. when, um, yeah, basically bad tenants is determined by one landlord is then effectively blacklisted from getting other accommodation and uh, well, landlords and rental agents to share those lists. Yeah, exactly. And yet there's no agent, there's no landlord blacklist. This was, I, mm. I really liked this thread on Twitter from Benson, Benson, Siebert, sorry, uh, who said the real estate agency wants five years of my residential and employment history plus character references, which in my case means gathering details for and contacting 12 people and uploading more than two dozen ID rental and financial documents to apply. They go on, these people know the make, model, and registration of my car. Why? Meanwhile, I don't know my landlord's name. Does this person have a long history of ignoring maintenance requests, dramatic rent rises, turning up at the property unannounced, evicting tenants for no reason? Nothing. And when I finally get to the end of this fast and free, quote, application, having already spent hours giving up more detailed information about my life than my employer knows about me, would I like to, quote, show I'm a great tenant by paying for my own background check? Which is why, you know, repeatedly, I think the Greens have called for a landlord blacklist. If there's going to be a renter's blacklist, there should be a landlord blacklist. Um, Anyway, the other thing, final thing that this agreement said that they would, quote, consider options for better regulation of short-stay residential accommodation as if they just realised that Airbnb is a thing that maybe they should fucking do something about. What do you think about that, Dean Madigan? Are you on board? <laughs> do you think your clients should be should be blacklisted? Yeah, yeah. Maybe was, is that DMAT to get endorsed? Who can say? Who can say? <laughs> um, maybe we'll find out how endorsed all of this is after the national conference, ALP national conference is happening. Maybe as you're as you're listening to this, dear listener, or mm. maybe it's just happened. I think a lot of it is probably on the Friday and the Saturday this week. There are so many rallies. It's so funny. There's like seven or there's rallies every day. On Saturday, it reads, I, I was putting them all together and my friend said this is like a set list for the for the gig of the Labor National Conference. Um, <laughs> and wouldn't you know it, you know, the rally for renters and, and public housing is headlining at 11 a.m. Um, I think that, you know, we've already seen the CFMEU show out in force to push for a super profits tax to fund more public housing. We, I imagine, will be coming back next week and talking about what comes out of the National Conference and mm. the half negotiations as they continue. Yeah. I mean, and we should say the Greens came out pretty hard against these announcements. Adam Vance mm. says there's nothing here for renters. Max said that the uh, Labor Party is fat in the face of the nation's renters, which is uh, pretty accurate. So, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I just think it's it was really good to go through all that and thank you for putting that together, Emerald, because over the next between now and when the half is reintroduced to the parliament in October, mm-hmm. Labor is going to point to this agreement as like, we've yeah. done it. Okay, this is, the, this is the renter's rights. This is as good as you can get. We've negotiated in good faith and you should know that that is bullshit <laughs> and this is not anywhere near close to the kind of wins for renter's rights to change the state of renters in this country that the Greens are fighting for. Hence, the party will keep fighting for something better because we deserve it we and do. this country can deliver it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think we will. That feeling and that, like, we're winners no matter what is, is down to the fans. Like, they have created that. They have made 
us feel like, you know, we have done something amazing for them. And I've just, you know, walked down the street just with Maka just before and everyone was just saying thank you. Not, you know, well done that they normally do or great goal, just thank you. And me and Maka were literally, we got in the cab on the way home, we were laughing. Everyone was just <laughs> coming around us in the middle of Queen Street Mall and like, we've kind of just like, wow, that was amazing. And I think what we've done for them and what they've done for us has just been amazing. Um, we've talked about this before the World Cup, that we want to leave a legacy and have this moment talked about for 10, 20 years. And I think we have already done that, but to win a bronze medal and bring you know a World Cup medal to this country would be you know amazing. But um, it really feels like we have brought the nation together over football, which, you know, some people might have said we were we were crazy if we had said this was going to happen a year ago. So it is an amazing feeling, but there is definitely work still to be done. All right, football. Quickly, let's do it. Let's do a sports podcast. We have to. We're sports podcasters. We were a US politics podcasters. Now we're sports podcasters. Me, I bloody love sports ball. No. Um, <laughs> were you gripped by Matilda's fever, Emerald? Did you, did you watch uh, the game? Were you into it? Yes, I'm like a really reluctant, stubborn, anti-late adopter. When everyone's really into something, I'm like, I won't do it. Like I won't watch Game of Thrones or whatever. But I did accidentally, because my friend was streaming it on their phone, catch the last, like the penalty, whatever they call it, shootout thing um, with France and the Matildas. Oh, yeah. And... I was absolutely hooked and screaming in public, and so I watched the um, England versus Australia game this week. I was, I'm pretty, like, I'm not a big sports guy, as people know, but I do love the big event shit. So when if it's State of Origin, if it's the AFL Grand Final, if it's, like, mm. literally, yeah, millions of people tuning in for a World Cup, mm. I do go kind Something of on board. It, okay. and do go, go, yeah, it is pretty cool. And I'm in Edinburgh in Scotland, and, um, of course, the match was about 11 a.m. over here, and there was just a, at like, a beer garden filled with, Lots of Australians, a few English people, and lots of Scottish people who were barracking for the Australians because they wanted the English to lose. <laughs> and well, it was it was amazing. When Sam Kerr kicked that goal, every Australian yeah. leapt to their feet and it was fucking awesome. People lost their minds. Yeah, yeah. There's that video, I can't remember where it was, but just of a, an aerial shot of a crowd just leaping up and screaming yeah. when that happened. It's pretty, pretty incredible. And pretty extraordinary generally for the level of investment and public goodwill around a women's sporting match, which was kind of you know quite cool to see, I suppose. Uh, of course, it was sad that we lost. We did not win. <laughs> and England is going to play Spain in the final of the World Cup this weekend. We will still play for um, uh, the bronze medal. We play against third, Sweden right? yeah. on Friday night for the bronze. So go Sweden. Tilders for that. Shout out to Barnaby uh, for watching the wrong game of the Matildas on the television. That was pretty fucking amazing. Yeah, yeah. It's great. All the politicians were getting it on the fund. You see Richard Miles resigned as defence minister and handed over to Mackenzie, which I just, I don't know, to me I was a bit like, oh, this is when it does become borderline propaganda in kind of like nationalism easy and the politicians can get all the sweet credit. I like. Yeah, yes. fuck off. Like, and as if they like you. They're the woke Matildas. <laughs> you know? You think they're on board with Orcus, you fuckhead? Yeah. <laughs> uh, of course, the reason we lost the game is because Anthony Albanese jinxed us with his mm. false promises of a public holiday. Did you follow Marcus the public, holiday, public holiday, holiday discourse? 
this idea. It was thrown around. He was in an interview back in June. He was asked, hey, if Matildas win the whole World Cup, then surely Australia will get a public holiday. He says, hmm, that seems like a pretty good idea. A lot of talk about mm-hmm. it, a lot of talk about it. We're getting closer. Of course, if we, you know, won this game, we would have gone through to the final. And then eventually a head of national cabinet at the Albanese, he says, ah, we're not going to discuss it or it's all a matter for the states and territories. Just a fun, and yeah. didn't happen. Fucking, yeah, what a dog. I mean, what do you think about the, just quickly, the, the take? I see some people saying, oh, it's it's anti-poverty or it's pro-whatever um, to call for a public holiday when you're in a cushy permanent position at work because casuals can't plan for the loss of income from a new public holiday. And I'm like, I don't know, public holidays are generally good and, like, you should get protection and better wages um, and also have a public <laughs> holiday. You know um, what I mean? Get better protection and wages, bitch, then come back to me. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, when you do it. Like, yes, obviously, like, I'm I'm sorry, Cosy lives are really bad. We're working on that as well, but we would also like new public holidays. Well, look, we should not have a public holiday based on the success of a sporting team. We shouldn't have a one-off public holiday based on no. – whether or not our sporting team is victorious in a sporting match. We should have public holidays because we work too much and mm-hmm. working people need a break and we, we should reduce the amount of work we have in our lives. We should have a four-day yeah. work week for the same reason. But, I mean, you know, this was what was so maddening about this debate all this week was the idea that it's a little treat for the people of Australia that a sports mm. team wins. I mean, it's one thing for, like, yeah. you know, the, the classic Bob Hawke quote to be like, I tell you what, any boss who sacks anyone for not turning up the day is a bum. <laughs> Yeah. Awesome, rock and roll based. We love it. But that's different. <laughs> Skipping work is different to Skipping, a yeah, government endorsed public holiday. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, did you know that the Queensland Greens did a big public holiday push in 2017? It was one of the like most, uh, it was one of our biggest announcements, I believe. This was kind of pre my time, but like sent people absolutely nuts, along with dollar $1 fares, public transport fares. Amazing. Well, we proposed four. We said we want four new public holidays a year. Um, I think one of them would be like a First Nations Day of recognition of some sort, maybe NADOC. Something would be about national parks or something. Um, there's another one that I can't remember. And one was State of Origin Day. So, like, <laughs> I, I assume game three or one of the games, it would be a public holiday, which absolutely it should be. Like, why the fuck not? Why not? Well, yeah, we have one off a fucking Melbourne Cup day. We have one off for the head of the AFL Grand Final yeah, in Victoria now. Yeah, you guys now. do in Victoria, yeah. Yeah, Jesus Yeah, if Christ. we have the fucking Melbourne Cup, we can have a day off a state of origin. But everyone got and, – and I will say, like, at the time, I went and looked at this announcement <laughs> and I can see that Labor said something like, um, yeah, Cameron Dick said – I'm not sure it's something Queenslanders are looking for. I've not heard people talking about the need for more public holidays. I'm not sure it's something Queenslanders will want. LNP yes. leaders, well, I guess the LNP is on brand still hating public holidays. You know, Peter Dutton was very anti-public holiday. He said, more loopy policies from a loopy party that's not going to deliver any economic benefit because, um, you know, the small businesses and blah, blah, blah. Yes, the business just and these fucking cucks. Tasmanian Premier, sole Liberal leader on the National Cabinet, Jerry Rockliffe, poured cold water on the idea. We're 100% behind the Batildas, but we won't supporting a public holiday. Our small businesses are often the first to sponsor and support our grassroots and elite sports. It's too much to expect them to shoulder this cost too. His own oh, daughters were quick to roast off. him in a family chat. Dad, WTF, one wrote, while Ruby added, no, Dad, we need another holiday. Rockliffe oh shared that ribbing on Facebook. Safe to say I'm not 
not the most popular member of the Rockliffe family this morning. What the fuck is wrong oh with God. you? Your daughters think you're Men a cunt. Posting their Why L's. Are you what are you doing? <laughs> what a fucking idiot. Palaszczuk is adopting a let's see how we go approach. I love the idea of the public holiday, but let's get them there in the first place. I don't want to jinx anything. So, again, just the idea that you're the leader of a state and, oh, the team didn't win, therefore we won't have a day off. What the fuck's wrong with you? said she was commissioning a review into whether we (laughs) should have a new public holiday. Oy, oy, oy. Do you think this is a watershed moment for women's sports more broadly? I mean, 75,000 people were in the stadium watching the game. It was the highest rating thing on Australian TV across the board Mm. all year. And there was, as we mentioned, this remarkable sense of national unity with all the Mm -hmm. scepticisms and how much of that illusion that could be. You know, if if, if us coming together as a nation to feel about something is anything, if that's something that can happen, you would have to say that it certainly happened around this match and it happened Mm. around the match of uh, women's football, which is um, a remarkable thing to have happen, I suppose, based on the the history of the male domination of, of sport in this country. Would that be fair to say? Yeah. Oh, yeah, like I think, and it's certainly true that, you know, women's sport is just completely yeah, underpaid, underrated, underpromoted, undervalued. Um, the idea that, yeah, it's people are not as interested in women's sport, that it's not as impressive. And certainly I think this has kind of blown that out of the water. It's very difficult to make that argument anymore when far more people, yeah, like, the, you know, more people have watched a, a women's football game than watched Origin or something like that that's the only that's what i watch but yeah (laughs) i agree i'll tell you what i hate though is like people saying yes now you can pay the matildas the same because they had to prove Mm. themselves in the market or whatever so 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 back in the day they say oh you don't pay people the same because they don't attract the same audiences yeah so now they have it so so now every women's sport i guess has to meet this same fucking test has to capture the nation's Mm. imagination and compete with literally centuries of male-dominated sport and attention and focus and money and funding, okay? So every single women's sport has to compete in the markets of sports attention in order to be paid fairly for their work and their labour, which is bullshit. Well, that's the thing, I think, and it is like it's a a labour rights issue and I know there was, I think, an article um, by Mick Clune in in Jacobin about, I guess, you know, (laughs) a socialist perspective on on the rise (laughs) of of the Matildas and I I think it concludes with like this was before the the game this week but it was like whoever wins will then play against Spain and you should support Spain um, because they, the the workers or the workers, the players went on on strike against their their coach or, or something, and so they're the socialist choice. Um, but he said you know, uh, the Matilda success hasn't been guaranteed. They are national heroes, and they're heroes that understand that workers need to stand strong together against discrimination and exploitation at the hands of their bosses. The Matildas are strikers on and off the field, and outspoken opponents of sexism. They're the antithesis of the machismo and conservatism that has plagued Australia in sports and with every victory they challenge another establishment prejudice it's yeah like true like yes truly kind of what's the word that i'm looking for trans across intersectional Intersectional? yeah like intersectional you know solidarity and it's it is remarkable to have such popular support for a, a team that has made no secret of the fact that they are incredibly progressive, right? Yes. 
pro-union, uh, strong First Nation solidarity. Mm-hmm. The f- team is full of out and proud queer women, including Sam Kerr, the national hero, and Mackenzie Arnold, um, the goalkeeper as well. Like, yeah, pretty fucking awesome. Of course, this has led to the ire of fuckheads on Twitter, like this Kobe Thatcher person who have no idea who this is at all. But this was the person when they won uh, the, oh, the match yeah. against France, you know, their tweet, I hope the woke Matildas lose tonight's game. That tweet was getting posted being like, fuck you, fuck you, the Matildas rule, we won in your face. And then, of course, Kobe was very happy with herself. Uh, once the Matildas lost, she tweeted, see you later, Matildas. Take your Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander flags with you. One country, one flag, one woke losing Australian women's national soccer team. What a cunt. <laughs> what a fucking loser. I mean, and yeah, and so out of out of tune with like what the broader public, the mood is. Yes. And I saw someone as well, I think, saying, you know, now would be the perfect time for Albanese to push for a referendum or push for a republic um, when everyone's like, fuck the fucking, fuck England, England. fuck the monarchy, <laughs> fuck the king. Yeah. Um, we should do it now. But absolutely, I mean, God, the English suck, don't they? Great, yeah, great example there of the anti-woke crowd being completely out of step with with the vast mm. majority of people. Okay, we I think we yes. could agree there are some elements of of wokeism, whatever the fuck that means, of PC culture that is not entirely yeah. uh, connected with the vast majority of people. Sure, that's the ongoing fight to you know to liberate everybody. But holy shit, if you want to be if you want your finger further off the pulse from the anti-woke crowd, then it shit on the Matildas you right anti-Matildas. now. Anti-Matildas, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fucking losers. Uh, no, we love the Tillies. I think they're, they're fucking, yeah. Makes me wish, you know, I, I played soccer when I was a little girl very, very briefly. Could have been me. Who knows if I'd just stuck with it. <laughs> Halfback passes to the center. Back to the wing. Back to the center. Center holds it. Holds it. Holds it. Halfback passes to center. Back to wing. Back to center. Center holds it. Holds it. Holds it. All right. Call to action. Oh, yeah. There was some other news this week. Some guys yeah. running for the mayor of Brisbane. What the hell? Some guy, John Sri Ranganathan, one of the most radical politicians. I think, I mean, the most radical politician in the country. Maybe the big, big socialist can come for me. I don't care. Um, <laughs> and two-time serious danger guest announced... On Wednesday, also unfortunately the day that National Cabinet met and announced a bunch of shit, that he is running for Lord Mayor of Brisbane. I still think it's quite funny that they say Lord Mayor, but Lord Mayor, uh, which would mean that he would replace the most powerful LNP figure on the mainland because, as we've said, Brisbane City Council is basically pretty much the size of like a state government. It's enormous, massive budget, and, yeah, biggest government still in power on the mainland. If you want to support Jonah's campaign, because I think it will be fucking interesting and cool. <laughs> he is, I mean, you can have a look. We'll put the link to his candidacy statement announcement in, in our show note. But um, you can go back and listen to some of the interviews we've done with him. He has an incredible record that makes him just like catnip for the LMP to get mad about, you know. He has spoken about, hey, if there are empty, empty homes in, in your neighbourhood, maybe you could like stay there if you if you need to they're like he supports squatting he supports trespassing um he has been wrongfully arrested by by police for being involved in protests supporting refugees um he you know is a staunch uh critic of racism in the police 
Um, he's just he's just a sick cunt. If you are in Brisbane, <laughs> Manjun, you should volunteer for his campaign. We'll put the link in the show notes. If you're not and you have a bit of spare cash and could throw it his way, I know that that campaign, I think, has gets like zero starting money. Like he really doesn't have any money to do anything. And I think if anyone could do some cool shit with a little bit of cash and, you know, some money to to pay volunteers, well, to base to pay staff to run a big campaign, it would be Jono. So we'll put the donate link in the show notes too. Also, shout out to Better Renting. Uh, everyone mentioned that uh, they helped us put together some uh, thinking and some facts mm. for this week's episode. They do great work. They came out really strong saying that this is not good enough at all. They care about renters just like the Greens. Betterrenting.org.au. Sign up for their updates to be involved in surveys and actions and their general advocacy for renters' rights across the country. Betterrenting.org.au. And SeriousDangerPod.com. That's the website where you can find our things. Uh, you can support the show by signing up to Patreon. It's just three bucks a month and you get access to premium subscriber-only content, a bunch of cool interviews, Tom's interview with Lee Rhiannon. Uh, we have some cool stuff coming up on that podcast, on, on the Patreon, and you get access to it all, all the back catalogue through. You get instructions to add it to your podcast app so you don't have to go and listen to it on Patreon as well when you subscribe, and it helps keep the show running. Um, if you can't do that, Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or if you're listening now, leave us a five-star review. Go follow us on at SeriousDangerAU on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. Uh, send us an email if you want, hello at SeriousDangerPod.com. But apart from that, we can go bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Serious Danger Australia.